Just a quick disclaimer, it gets a little violent this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week, on Myths and Legends, we're wrapping up the story of Jaya and Vijaya. You'll see that Krishna has 99 problems, and a guy incessantly screaming insults at his face is the cause of pretty much all of them. The creature this week is why it's good to have hobbies. You might meet someone who shares that hobby, fall in love, and then live happily ever after. Never mind that the hobby you share is surprising strangers on the road at night and eating them in one bite. This is Myths and Legends, episode 114b, Heavy. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on Myths and Legends, we met the gatekeepers of Vishnu's celestial abode, a pair by the name of Jaya and Vijaya. Unfortunately, they angered some super god children, through the common mistake of believing they were just children, and not super god children, and so the kids cursed them to mortality on earth. Vishnu wouldn't lift the curse, but gave them a choice instead. Live seven lifetimes as normal people, or three lifetimes as super powerful kings, who would spend their existence raging against Vishnu. Ultimately, they chose the latter, because it was less time away from Vishnu, and they died. Last episode, they were reincarnated as demon kings twice, and twice they were defeated by avatars of Vishnu. They only had one more life to go before they were turned home. She had been pushing for several minutes before the cries became audible. The mother, Queen Shrutashrava, laughed at the sound. Her baby was crying. Her baby was alive. The sages hadn't wanted to meet her eyes after the first trimester, and she'd taken that as a bad omen. But they were wrong. That's when she began to notice that she was the only one laughing. All around the room, attendants stood transfixed on the newborn, the baby's cries continuing to fill the air. It was only when the queen demanded to know what they were looking at, what was wrong with her baby, that the audience roused from shock and handed him to her. The baby, to be called Shishupal, was healthy, and then some. In fact, he had four arms and three eyes. As the queen clutched the writhing baby, the thing to her chest, she wept. The king and queen were going to do it themselves. There was a nearby cliff that dropped harshly into the ocean. It was the only way to be sure. Otherwise, a servant could lose their nerve and then you'd end up battling or possibly marrying the kid later on in life. Ugh, no thanks. The queen handed the baby to the king. Even though he was an abomination, she just couldn't do it herself. The king stood there, on the edge of the cliff, wavering. Just as he was about to cast the child into the sea, he paused. The queen looked at him. Did he hear that too? He nodded. Just as the king was about to drop the child to the rocks below, a voice cried out simultaneously in both of their minds, telling them to stop telling them to not abandon the boy. The father looked down to the child. 
The newborn's four hands gripped his fingers so that he could gum them while the voice continued. The voice resumed resounding in their minds, saying that the child would be a powerful warrior who would obtain good fortune as a king. He would lose his extra arms and eye. Have faith. And also, seriously, don't abandon children in the wild, guys. Come on. By now, the father was trembling, knowing that they had been so close to killing the boy that the gods had wanted them to keep. The mother spoke up. How will he lose the arms and eye? The voice answered that, when he was placed in the lap of a certain guest, his eye and arms would disappear. That would be the person who would slay their son. Oh, awesome. So it'll be someone we know. Wait, what? The voice replied that he was not destined to die in childhood, if that helped. The queen spat back. It didn't. What did the voice mean by slay her son? The voice felt like that whole part was pretty clear. And he kind of felt like he had already said too much. But okay. To recap, the boy was going to be fine in a couple of days, and then pretty decidedly not fine in several years. Okay, bye-bye. Instantly, the parents were alone again, standing on the cliff where they were just about to cast their child down to his death, having now learned that he had just inherited a wonderful destiny and a tragic end. Both parents looked down to the baby cooing in the queen's arms. They were going to know their son's future killer because he or she would be a visitor to their home and be the one to heal the boy. Well, they just had to ensure that the healer didn't leave their palace alive. The queen mother always had a knife with her whenever they had guests. When the one came, it would be obvious. They would watch the extra eye and arms disappear and hopefully not fall away because that would be gross. And then they would exclaim in joy and the mother would stab their guest in the neck and not stop until they were dead. She would do anything it took to save her child. Well, almost anything. You see, this was a very special dinner. There was a guest there, the last one they would ever suspect of killing their son. It was when Krishna held their boy that his extra arms and eye disappeared. In surprise, the mother let go of the knife she had gripped ever since those early days with her son. Krishna was the avatar of the god Vishnu, and quite possibly the supreme god in his own right. But Vishnu was said to be the preserver, one of the main deities of Hinduism. Basically, there were people you could kill, and then there was Krishna. If it happened to be anyone else other than a living god, the mother probably would have tried it. But what did it mean that Krishna was going to kill her son? Krishna only smiled at her and handed her baby back, saying that he was grateful to have been around for this. She smiled nervously and took her baby as the whole table rejoiced. But then she had an idea. She turned around with a smile, saying that they were family, right? Krishna nodded. His father was her brother, of course. And so the mother got down on her knees, begging that Krishna would forgive her son's offenses. Please, don't kill him. Now, if this were me, I would kind of stop the whole conversation right there. There was a lot to unpack, but Krishna rolled with it. He smiled. Absolutely. He would pardon 100 offenses of Shishupal. You know, once he was old enough to actually commit offenses. Truly, his mother should not grieve for his life. Wiping tears from her eyes, the mother thanked Krishna. 
Everything that she had feared since learning the boy would be okay was washed away by Krishna's words. Her boy, her future king, was going to live. Shishupal rode fast. He was on his way to meet the woman who would be his wife. Of course, he didn't remember the times before Krishna came. Times before he only had two arms and two eyes. But everyone else did. Some revered him. Most avoided him. And so he knew early on that he would need to outpace the circumstances of his birth. His parents knew it too. He'd become a serious boy who grew into a sober, stern man. Still, rumors abounded. Tales told in dark corners of two demons reborn throughout time. One had ruled all the universes and even put the gods to heal. Another tried to drag a goddess into the primordial ocean and cover the worlds in darkness. Once, one defied an ancient hero, an early avatar of Vishnu, actually. And another who, well, he was actually pretty jovial and reasonable. He just ate a lot of monkeys. The prophecies surrounding Shishupal's birth were well-known and widespread. His parents believed the curse that the seer spoke of to be lifted when Krishna healed him. But Shishupal came to learn differently. Word of the curse was the curse. Everyone, even his own parents in the back of their minds, in those quiet thoughts they dared not speak aloud, thought that it could be. Shishupal could be the third incarnation of the demon. Unlike the other two instances we've seen, however, Shishupal wasn't a demon. Broadly, the demons were completely different types of beings than humans. Hearing Akashipu and his brother, well, they were demons, and so were Ravana and his brother. Shishupal, however, was a human, and he only wanted to prove that he wasn't what everyone said he was. He wasn't going to ignore the prophecies and the whispers. He was going to use them to become a strong and honorable king. He turned the corner and saw the warriors of his friend, Rukmi, the crown prince of Vidarbha, falling brutally at the hands of a stranger towering over them. In the distance, Shishupal located his friend, Rukmi stood fighting with everything he had. But wait. Shishupal squinted through the sunlight. Rukmi was fighting Krishna's brother. A sudden movement caught Shishupal's eye. Krishna himself was getting away. Beyond the fight, he watched in horror as Krishna held Rukmini, the woman Shishupal was set to marry, and he started carrying her away. had been Shishupal's friend since he was old enough to have friends. Shishupal's parents actually encouraged the friendship. Both boys would be kings someday, after all. Since their kingdoms were close, it would behoove them to be close as well. And they were. So much so that when Rukmini, Rukmi's sister, came of age, there was only one man Rukmi wanted her to marry. His oldest friend and their kingdom's strongest ally, Shishupal. Of course, Shishupal was happy about this. Not only was he going to be in his best friend's family, but he was going to marry the woman who, somehow objectively, was the most beautiful woman in the world. The parents were won over, and soon decreed that their daughter would marry Shishupal. The whole kingdom celebrated, except there was one person who was not completely jazzed about the union, and that was Rukmini, the daughter 
the woman slated to marry Shishupal did not agree with the decision made about her future. Rukmini knew her own beauty and intelligence, and also knew that this was a pivotal moment in her life, a point where she could have control. Rukmini had heard of Shishupal. Like most, she believed the rumors that he could be the ancient evil incarnate. Evil or not, though, he was a king. Just a king. And she wanted more than that. And so, she wrote a letter. Now, few people seriously ask to be kidnapped. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's no longer kidnapping if you ask someone to do it. At that point, it's just getting a ride. But that's exactly what Rukmini did. She handed a letter to a sage passing through town, waited a few days, and then visited the temple. It was empty. She guessed that he wasn't coming after all. Rukmini hung her head. Maybe it had been too much to want to marry a god. Fine. She would settle for Shishupal. Maybe that was the best she could do. She took one step out of the temple and found herself looking at his chariot. What? Krishna had arrived? He held out a hand. He had received her letter, and he wanted to marry her, too. She took that hand and leapt aboard the chariot, just as the arrows began to whiz past her head. Rukmi had been watching his sister closely. He had seen the letter she passed in secret a few days prior, but he had been unable to intercept it. When he saw Krishna roll into town with his older brother, Balarama, he knew that something was going down. Hastily, he assembled his warriors and headed to the temple as well. And it was then that Shishupal entered town, his own entourage in tow. Krishna spurred the horses on, and the trio and the chariot quickly became a duo, as Balarama, Krishna's older brother and another avatar of Vishnu, jumped to the ground, shaking the earth. He swung his sword in the face of the oncoming army and grinned. At this point, Shishupal noticed Krishna riding off with the woman he was set to marry and joined the fray himself thinking that she had been kidnapped. He watched as Balarama held off Rukmi's army, and Krishna moved farther and farther away. That's when Shishupal met the eyes of his oldest friend. Oh yeah, they were going to do something about this. Shishupal reached for his sword, and, pushing aside the warriors that were now fleeing from Balarama's weapon, he soon faced the god himself. Balarama assumed that this was just another soldier who wanted to stop Krishna from doing what had to be done, so he swung his sword. And it stopped. I mean, it hit Shishupal's sword, but it stopped, locked blade to blade in a power struggle. Shishupal stood there, straining against the strength of a god with all of his might, and Balarama's sword began to yield. That was literally something that had never happened before. Balarama was so occupied that he didn't notice Rukmi, the prince, slide past him and leap into a chariot of his own at the edge of town. The wind whipping his face, Rukmi stared at the traveling cloud of dust behind Krishna's chariot and sped towards it. He would catch up to the avatar of Vishnu and he would get his sister back. Meanwhile, Balarama, who was still losing ground to Shishupal, noticed Rukmi's chariot leave. He glanced at all the other warriors too scared to fight or follow. And this one... Balarama landed a kick square on Shishupal's chest that sent him sprawling backwards into the crowd. This one wouldn't be a problem anymore. Though, he felt that there was something about him. He would need to talk to his brother about this Shishupal fellow. But for now, he took off in a sprint after Rukmi's chariot. By the time Shishupal was able to catch his breath, Balarama was long gone. And, surrounded by stunned people, 
even more rumors sprang to life about the man who, by himself, stood up to a god. Balarama found the bloody and beaten form of Rukmi crumpled on the ground, while his brother, Krishna, stood victoriously over the man commanding him to yield. Rukmi looked up in defiance to the mace that would end all of this. Krishna raised it high above his head and almost brought it down. But there were now two people below. It was Rukmini. She was on the ground, clutching her brother's torn, broken body, begging Krishna to spare him. Rukmi tried to tell her no. He wanted this. If he died there, he would die an honorable death. He didn't want to live if it meant living in shame. But Krishna listened to his very recently betrothed and relaxed the arm with the mace. He would spare this one, but he would have to wear a symbol of his shame for as long as he lived. Krishna bent down and gripped Rukmi by the hair. Pulling his sword from his belt, he shaved the prince's head right there on the battlefield. Rukmi, too injured to move, watched his sister, Krishna, and Balarama board the chariot. Rukmini looked back in anger and pity, and that was the last time Rukmi ever saw his sister. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When Shishupal could move again, he hobbled until he found where Rukmi lay, and hobbled even further to a nearby village where he could secure his friend the help he needed. Rukmi eventually recovered, but he was never the same. He stopped fighting after that day, and, though he was heir apparent, he never returned to the capital, even after his father died. For years he lived, recognized locally as a god of defeat and shame. After Shishupal left him, he stood looking toward the distant horizon. To Krishna's capital, he knew to be far beyond the forests. Even though he had lost his extra arms and eye, even though he was a hard ruler who demanded respect and obedience from his people to compensate for the many slights against him, he was still being robbed and humiliated by the gods. Well, no more. Before his mother died, she told him that no matter what he did, he was protected from Krishna. Good, because he was going to fight back. He wasn't going to be laughed at by men or gods anymore. Shishupal would earn his respect by blood, fire, and fear. Years later, 
Krishna sat across the table from Balarama and a sage. They had to do something about Shishupal. He was becoming a real problem. After Krishna abducted Rukmini, Shishupal had been relentless. And even if Krishna had been able to go against his word and fight back, he wouldn't have been able to hit Shishupal. The man was a brilliant strategist. Krishna had been at war with another king and came back to find his capital city, Dwaraka, burned to the ground, the name of Shishupal on everyone's lips. Then, while the kings of Bota were spending time with their wives, he surprised them all. And the next morning, the city lay still with death. After it was rebuilt, Shishupal managed to sneak into the city twice more. The first time, he stole Krishna's father's favorite horse. It was later found dead outside the city. The second time was to steal the wife of one of Krishna's friends. Fortunately, she lived, but Shishupal forced her into marriage. At this point, Balarama began chastising his brother for taking Rukmini in the first place. He had set a wildfire and just laid down and gone to bed while the whole world burned around him. Shishupal couldn't be bargained with. He wouldn't be satisfied by anything other than death. They should give him that. The sage argued, however, that while not incorrect, it also wasn't so simple. Shishupal, in his open defiance of Krishna, was winning other kings to his side, other kings with darkness in their hearts, demons as well. Still, there was a solution to this that didn't involve full-scale war. Shishupal would be making overtures to Yudhisthira, the powerful king of the city of Indraprastha. If he won that king to his side, it would be over. The sacrifices were soon, and if Krishna made it before Shishupal, he might be able to win Yudhisthira to his side. If that were the case, and Yudhisthira and Krishna allied, Shishupal's own alliances would collapse out of fear. So, Krishna and his army, known as the Yadavas, must make all haste into Prastha. Krishna agreed with the sage and rose from the table. He would do it, and he would move as quickly as possible to ally with this king and save the world from the resurgence of the demon kings. And so it was that a few weeks later, Krishna stopped off at Mount Revitaka, essentially a beautiful mountain that also happened to be full of naked women. Krishna and his men spent a full year and 100 laboriously explicit pages in the embrace of said women before moving on. Because hey, it was just, you know, the fate of the world at stake. What is he doing here? Shishupal demanded when he arrived at Indraprastha, only to find Krishna in the seat of honor, presiding over the sacrifices. Shishupal asked the question, but he already knew the answer. Krishna had won. Well, he won the battle for Yudhisthira's alliance. He hadn't won the war. Shishupal clenched his fist and pounded the pillar next to him. The entire temple shuddered, and a hairline crack ran up through the support. Instantly, the room fell silent. Shishupal strode toward Krishna, saying nothing but hitting his thigh, which apparently was as hard as a great slap of mountain rock, the sound of which drove the servants and lesser kings from the room. Yeah, Shishupal did not skip leg day. He addressed Yudhishira, saying that he understood putting this mutt, this little coward, this nothing in the place of honor while he waited for a real king. But one was here now, Krishna could step aside. From his seat, Krishna whispered something to himself. 
Shishabal continued. He turned to Krishna, saying that the guy should really know who he was. Lack of self-knowledge invariably ended in ruin. Oh, well, Krishna still sat on the seat. So Shishupal would educate him. Krishna was a con man, a trickster, a cheap showman. Still seated, Krishna whispered to himself a few more times. Shishupal kept going. The time of the gods was ending. Once Krishna was gone, the earth would be ruled as it was supposed to be, by people. It would be safe and secure, not subject to the whims of a buffoon. What was Krishna even known for? Overturning a wagon? Knocking down trees? Lifting a mountain? Those weren't the actions of a king. Those were like a toddler drunk on his own strength. All throughout the monologue, Krishna kept whispering to himself. Shishupal said that Krishna was so deluded that he probably didn't even realize that Shishupal didn't even need Yudhisthira and his alliance. It was already done. Krishna could look around the room behind Shishupal and he wouldn't even see a single friendly face. The kings and the armies they brought would destroy Krishna and take the world back from the gods. Before he left, Shishupal yelled out to his comrades that this slave, this nothing wasting space atop his throne there, deserved to die and that they would be kind enough to grant it for him. With a smile, Shishupal turned and left and Krishna whispered to himself once again. And so the armies prepared for battle. We don't know much of Shishupal's preparations, but when it came to Krishna's, it said that his warriors were so mighty that they didn't even need armor. Their armor was heroism. But they also wore armor because heroism isn't real armor. One person was so impatient that his heavy armor was getting to him late that he pulverized it with his bare hands in an impatient fury. Which, yes, seems counterproductive, but I wouldn't tell that to a guy who just crushed iron into dust, would you? And so the Yadava clan, Krishna's warriors, were all smiles and eager as the gates opened and their elephants thundered out. But then, they saw the light. It was actually the sunlight reflecting off the shining weapons of Shishupal's armies. There were so many warriors gathered together that it was like staring directly into the sun. It blinded the Yadava. And that was when Shishupal's warriors rushed them. What ensued was not a blood bath. It was a blood ocean. When it comes to fighting with elephants, it seems like the name of the game is both trying to keep your elephants alive longer than the other guys, but also not accidentally getting killed by your own terrified elephants. The battlefield fell into a pit of chaos. Elephants dragged fallen men around by their entrails. They skewered warriors on both sides, with disregard for Team Krishna or Team Shishupal, the elephants being on the much more popular team, Not Dying. Unfortunately, members of Team Not Dying were now quickly dwindling. The battlefield became littered with carcasses, and, as is deeply unsettling, a couple elephants had their knees cut off at the joints, and they were now painfully wandering around the battlefield. Like, quote, bloody turtles, and they were skewering guys with their tusks and waiting to die. Before battle, it was said that the dust itself foresaw the coming slaughter and sprang into the air, refusing to return to the ground, knowing that it would only turn into mud. For a time, the earth merged with the underworld, crushed beneath the weight of the elephants. With dust in the sky, all three worlds temporarily became one. It was said that the warriors, quote, shopped the great market of battle and bought universal renown for eternity 
at the cost of their fleeting lives. People pressed on unto death. One pair, pierced through with the same arrow, found that they could still move and fought back to back until one of them died at last. Shishupal fought, and he lived. So he pressed forward. He saw Krishna in the battle, moving so fast that he seemed to split into two, three, even four forms. Shishupal notched an arrow, and Krishna stopped. Shishupal took a deep breath, and it started. You probably know the old quote, attributed to the 300 Spartans, where word on the street said that the Persians had so many warriors that their arrows would blot out the sun, to which the Spartans simply replied, Perfect! Then they would fight in the shade. This encounter was kind of like that, except Shishupal was a one-man Persian army. He managed to put so many arrows in the sky simultaneously that they did, actually, blot out the sun. For that instant, the world fell into darkness. Then, Krishna took out his own bow. One by one, arrow by arrow, Krishna fired into the air, and his arrows met Shishupal's arrows with such accuracy that they split them down the middle. Eventually, all of Shishupal's arrows toward the back grew scared, fell from the sky, and buried their faces in elephant blood, because that's absolutely a thing that normal arrows do. With the sun once again restored, Shishupal sneered and whispered something of his own. From the ground, two massive, hooded serpents arose. They snaked through the ground, scooping up the living and dead alike, making their way to Krishna, who stood alone on the hill. Krishna whispered to himself twice, and then he summoned the birds. From the mountains behind him, countless golden birds filled the sky and dove like a giant cloud, each of them targeting an open spot on the serpents below. The snakes writhed in pain at being slowly pecked to death by a million birds and quickly fled back into their holes. The mountains shook as they died in darkness. Undeterred, Shishupal called on the sorcery he had apparently learned and his own hands erupted into flames. In fact, the battlefield around him also burst into flames, immolating his own men. Still, he didn't care. All focus was on Krishna. It was like something deep inside him was urging him on, past the point of reason. Something that wanted to go home. He yelled, and fire exploded from his hands toward his enemy. Krishna only had a second to react, but a second was all he needed. It's said that Krishna's stomach holds four oceans, which was very helpful, because in an instant, clouds emerged from Krishna's beard hair and ascended into the sky. Thunder boomed, and rain plummeted down in torrents, dousing Shishupal's blaze, and extinguishing the pillar of flame headed Krishna's way. Shishupal roared with rage, looking frantically around the endless field of smoking death all around him. Everything his hate had brought him. He looked again at Krishna, and he pressed on. With each weapon strike he blocked, Krishna whispered something to himself. Shishupal advanced relentlessly, screaming curses at Krishna, yelling about Rukmi and Rukmini, saying that Krishna had come down to supposedly make the world lighter, but how much heavier was it with corpses because of him? Shishupal snarled that Krishna was nothing, and that the world would see that. With that, Shishupal's last weapon broke, leaving him standing there, panting in the rain that came from Krishna's beard. It was then that Shishupal finally heard what Krishna had been doing. He had been counting. 101, Krishna uttered. His oath to Shishupal's mother was fulfilled. 
in one smooth motion, Krishna took out his discus and sliced off Shishupal's head. Finally, the battlefield was silent. The war was over. Shishupal watched his own headless body drop forward to its knees before thudding against the ground. He felt his brain dying in his head and he smiled. It was always him. He was the demon that everyone feared. The being from prophecy that he had spent his entire life trying not to be. But maybe that was okay. Maybe that was who he was always supposed to be. Shishupal. No. Jaya. Yes, Jaya. Jaya finally knew who he was. And where he was supposed to be. At last, he was going home. In that moment in which he died, a brilliant, shining light erupted from his body. It was brighter than the sun, which was already showing its face once again as the clouds began clearing. The light flew from the body and came to rest in Krishna, an avatar of Vishnu. Jaya had gone home. As for Vijaya, he was a man by the name of Dantavakra, called such because his teeth were crooked. He was a king and an ally of Shishupal, who hadn't gone to Yudhisthira's sacrifices. When he learned of Shishupal's defeat, he found himself spurred to action by an anger he didn't quite understand and he found Krishna on a victory march back to his own capital. On the spot, the man challenged Krishna to single combat, and he lost. With that, the third and final lives of Jaya and Vijaya were complete. There isn't an accounting of what happened to Jaya and Vijaya. I like to think that they woke up in unison at their former gate, both talking about this weird dream that they'd had, where they were reborn on Earth and fighting Vishnu in all of his forms a dream which was already starting to fade from memory as four children approached the gate, asking to be let in. That's the story of Jaya and Vijaya. The most widespread versions of the Shishupal story have Krishna simply beheading him with his discus, or his chakra, before the battle, when they're all still sitting down. There's an 800-page epic poem with the spoilerific title of The Killing of Shishupal that includes the battle, and it was so incredibly over the top that I couldn't not include it. So yeah, that was our first time with stories from India. I absolutely plan on returning in time, but due to the amount of time it takes to find and research these stories, it'll be a little while. Next week, though, it's another first. If we don't count the Cinderella story, it's our first time in Chinese folklore, with a happy couple, a tyrant, and the building of the Great Wall. It's honestly an episode that I really enjoyed researching and writing, and I really think you guys will like it, so check it out. I'd like to say thank you to Rosie81, Ashley Story, Celili, Jared Tromp, Restunas, Banana and Anaba, Fozzinaz, Mirror Bright, S. Murphy7337, B. Finney, Aderna101, Drygun, and Ninjaman52 for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much for listening and for the reviews. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. You can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. 
creature this week is the Hamo Ukyu from Morocco. As a husband and wife, it's good to have common interests, be they hiking, cooking, or stalking members of the opposite sex as they travel the roads at night and consuming them in one bite. Two of those are probably more preferable to the other one, but you know, whatever works for you. This creature is the husband of an infamous female jinn who goes by the name of Echa Candida. I'm not sure if there was a murdering strangers on the road at night meetup that they just both went to and fell for each other, or if, while they were dating, Echa Candida told her boyfriend of this hobby that he just had to try. And, enthusiastic about it or not, Hemu went along with it, because it was nice to spend time together. After whatever it is a demon genie wedding looks like, the little hobby continued. The husband, Hemu, consumes women, while the wife, Echa, consumes men. She's mainly a water creature and goes through the pretty standard and involved method of pretending to be a beautiful young woman and luring men over to the water's edge before she becomes a monster. If she wants to eat you, that's pretty much it. She's relentless, but she can only really hunt one person at a time. So if you're cool with trying to find another person and then throwing them in front of a hungry genie, well, that's one way out. I feel like Hamu is less committed to the whole hobby though. He doesn't have any real gimmick like his wife, And when he's out on the road and hears his prey sharpening a knife on the ground, as we all do all the time, he'll decide it's not worth the trouble. And I guess just go get some takeout. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.